0: We have two readings this morning. The first is Genesis 1, verses 26 through 31. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Our second reading will be Colossians 1, and I'll be reading verses 1 through 14. Colossians 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. To the holy and faithful brothers in Christ at coloss grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints the faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you have already heard about in the word of the truth, the gospel that has come to you. All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. and joyfully giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is God's word.
1: Let me add my welcome to Mats and uh, say so it's very good to have you with us, whether you're visiting or not. A happy new year to you. It's very good. Uh, And we'd like to welcome you here this morning. Uh, We are, as Matt said, beginning this morning a series in the book of Colossians. And uh, we'll be considering that second reading, Colossians chapter 1, verse 1 to 14, uh, together this morning. Why don't I pray for God's help as we begin. Our Father God, we praise you and thank you for your words we praise you and thank you for the lord jesus and we pray that your spirit would help us grasp and understand who he is in a new and fresh way this morning that we would live for him we pray in jesus name amen now i want to begin by uh, by asking you a question and it might sound like a strange question and the question is where do you live where do you live and I don't mean by that uh, asking where do you live expecting the answer of your postcode or you live in north London or south London or you live in England no I'm asking the question where do you live spiritually speaking that's an even stranger question how do you even begin to answer that kind of question that's a hard question to answer maybe even if you're a Christian or a you wouldn't call yourself a Christian here this morning where do you live spiritually speaking Well, I want to give us the tools to be able to answer that question and to persuade us that that is the important question for us to ask and answer this morning. Because this book of Colossians, it will say it's a defining question for whether or not you're fruitful as a human being. It's a remarkable claim. Now, I take it we believe that the circumstances that we live in, that we find ourselves in, the job that we live in, the place that we live well, it makes a big difference. It has a big impact on whether or not we flourish or not. So a few weeks ago, we, we remembered, didn't we, with the, uh, the death and the memorial and the burial of Nelson Mandela, we remembered uh, his radical change in circumstances that he helped to bring about, but we remembered what a difference it made from the days when he was in prison, the days when he was in Robben Island. I reread a little snippet uh, of his book, Long Walk to Freedom. And he talks about those days in Robben Island, And he'd forgotten, really, about the goodness of what life was. The food was awful, as you'd expect there. And then there was one month when when they were understaffed in the kitchens and and more political prisoners started to go into the kitchens and uh, serve and prepare the food. And Mandela talks about how they began to, little by little, taste real vegetables, taste meat, used to appear in their stews. And he said that we just realised that this was the good food that we should have been eating for years. And then, of course, there was the radical change in his circumstances as he was driven on the day of his freedom. He was driven to the Grand Parade, the City Hall in Cape Town. And what a dramatic change, what a radical change in circumstances. Of course, there might be little so dramatic as that in our own lives, but uh, Jason spoke earlier of boys in Battersea who have no fathers and think of the dramatic change that has, the impact that has on the circumstances of your life. And there's something, isn't there, about a, about a new year which brings into focus the circumstances that we live in and the circumstances that we'd want to change, the circumstances maybe that we regret living in. And we've got all sorts of hopes for new circumstances. But in this letter, the Apostle Paul wants us to bring to the foregrounds this question of, where do you live? What are your circumstances, spiritually speaking? He wants to, to bring that to the very, very center of our thoughts. Now, it is a strange question, where do you live, spiritually speaking? And it used to be that there was only one answer you could give to that question. To the question of, where do you live, spiritually speaking? You had to say, I live in the world. Not uh, not the world in the narrow sense of planet Earth, where we breathe oxygen, but but the world in the sense of an order of things run according to certain principles. And that's what the Apostle Paul means by the word world in this letter. He describes it as a dominion of darkness in chapter 1, verse 13, do you see? It's a realm, an order of things, run according to certain principles. And it used to be that that every human being lived in this order, under this dominion. But I began by asking, where do you live, spiritually speaking? Because now there's another answer that's possible to give to that question. Some people live in the world, but it's now possible for for other people, for some people to live under a different order of things, what Paul describes as in Christ, in Christ. So in chapter 1, verse 13, Matt mentioned it at the beginning, it tells us about a transfer. Some people have been transferred from, from being one, under one spiritual authority, one realm, to Christ, alive in a different realm, in Christ. And so that's why at the very beginning of this letter, chapter 1, verse 2, Paul begins and he says, he greets the holy and faithful brothers in Christ. And the, uh, the surprise today is that, that according to Paul, this is the whole answer of what it is to be fruitful, truly, in the deepest sense. That it's the only answer to being fruitful as a human being. Now that, uh, that I take it, is controversial. So uh, if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, this in a sense runs counter, really counter to what we might think. For if we don't follow Christ, well, well, the whole premise of our life is that it's possible to live a fruitful, a significant life in the deepest sense without having Christ at the center. And yet the Apostle Paul would say that in the deepest sense, that's not true. That cannot be true. That unless your fortunes are tied to, to Christ, that you cannot live the most fruitful life as a human being that you could but uh, this letter was penned to christians those who would call themselves christians who followed christ because they and we need convincing that christ living in christ is the whole answer is it not the case that probably the circumstances the sadnesses in which we find ourselves living have more of an impact we feel that have more of an impact than living in christ and so we need persuading too that this is the whole answer. Well, we begin to get that answer in verses 3 to 8, come with me to those verses. Where we see there, and Paul wants us to notice, that it is the hope that you heard, that you already heard, that makes you fruitful. What we're doing in verses 3 to 14 is we're listening to a man retell to these Christians what he prays for them. But he's not just filling up space until he gets to the heart of, his, of the letter and his argument. No, he chooses his words really carefully. As he retells his prayer to them, and as we overhear that, he wants us to grasp something. In verses 3 to 8, he singles out for them the one source of their growth. Do you see that? In verses 3 to 8, as we look at those verses, there are three things that are important, three things That are there. The first is uh, the idea of fruit, of growth. So there's fruit sprouting everywhere, growth coming everywhere, growth spreading, fruit. There's uh, the hope mentioned once in verse 5, but it's critical. And the third idea is the fact that they've already heard this. This this is nothing new. They've heard it before. They've already got it in a sense. It's already come to them. So verse 3. Paul says, we always thank the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. Why? Well, because of the God-given signs of fruit that are sprouting in you. So, faith in the Lord Jesus. When Christians show faith in the Lord Jesus, Paul says, no, that's a sign of God-given fruit in them. When they begin to trust in him, show reliance upon him. Or their love for all the saints. When Christians begin to show a love for other Christians for no other reason than that they're Christians... Well, Paul says that's a God-given love, a God-given sign of fruits. And this fruit comes from only one place. It comes from the hope of verse 5. This faith and love shows that they've taken to heart the hope of verse 5. Now, what is this hope? It's not, uh, it's not the character trait of being hopeful, as if Christians are always glass-half-full kind of people. They're always hopeful people. It's not the virtue hope in the sense of faith, hope, and love. No, here it's something solid, concrete. It's objective, it's substantial. It's stored up for you, he says, in heaven. And he doesn't mean it's stored up for you in heaven in the sense that that's where you'll one day go, Christian. It's not a Christian's future destination in that sense. No, it's Christ's present location. Your hope, this hope, is stored up for you in heaven because that's precisely where Christ is and your hope is tied to him. Well, how does this hope produce fruit? Well, do you notice in in verse 6 that uh, you come into contact with this hope in a very unflashy way? You hear a spoken message that's reliable, ultimately because it's appointed by God himself. That's how it happened for the Colossians. They heard about it in the word of truth, the gospel that came to you. That's how it happened for every Christian person here. We came into contact with this hope through a spoken message, a reliable message from God. And do you see in verse 6, what what Paul wants them to know is that, that this hope is prolifically fruitful. It's like mobile life. Everywhere it goes, it produces fruit. All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace and all its truth. Wherever it goes, It produces fruit. It can't help but produce fruit. It's inevitably fruitful. It's prolifically fruitful. We had that passage from Genesis 1 read because fruit and fruitfulness, from Genesis 1 to the end of the Bible, it's the most basic Bible word and image for human beings living as they were meant to live, being as they were meant to be, doing what they were meant to do, thriving as they were meant to. And Paul says that this fruitfulness is all down to this hope. And so he retells to the Colossians his prayer because he wants to say, no, your, your vital signs of fruitfulness, they all come from one source. I want you to trace them all to one source. This hope, only this hope, makes you fruitful. Now all of this slightly begs the question, What what is the hope? I mean, it's the key. It, it, it makes you fruitful. It's the key to thriving as a human being. But wh- well, what is it? What is significant about this hope? Well, to understand it, we have to look on very briefly to chapter 1, verse 27. If you could flick over there, because there Paul gives, if you like, the neatest summary, the three-word definition of what this hope is. Chapter 1, verse 27. Paul says to them, he's chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery which is, here it is, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you. So this message, this message, this hope is so critical and so important because of who it joins you to, because of of who it affiliates you with, with Jesus Christ. And so only this hope is fruitful. Because in a sense, only Jesus Christ brings this fruitfulness. I want to just pause for a moment and just, just register what Paul is saying and, and how it runs counter to everything we've been trained to avoid in life, which is to put all our hopes in one place and, is to, and to expect one thing to be the key to our thriving. It runs counter to, to everything we've been ever told in life. So if uh, if you've ever gone to a careers advisor... If you've ever given careers advice yourself, of course, you say the, div- the diverse CV, the one with lots of different experience, not single experience, but multiple experience. Well, that's the good CV. That's the rounded CV. That's the rounded candidate. And so we encourage people, don't we? We say, um, get some experience over here. It might be useful then to, to maybe work for this person. That will be helpful in the future. And then maybe do a secondment here. And get some experience there and, 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 and get a broad range of experiences and that way you'll be a rounded candidate. That's the advice we give. Any investment advisor worth their salt will, will say, don't put everything in one investment, however much you think it's going to pay off. Now, diversify. And of course that way it reduces risk. So we say, "No, think of multiple sources. The answer is diverse, it's, it's plural. And that's really the case surely in the spiritual realm. I mean, surely when we say, no, if you're going to know what it is to be spiritual truly, well, you've got to be open, haven't you? You've got to be open to all sorts of different influences. And so it's the height, surely, of of arrogance and of narrow-mindedness to say that, no, spiritual fruitfulness, and in the deepest sense, human fruitfulness comes from one source and from one person. It runs counter to, to everything we've ever been told. And Paul says that this hope is fruitful because this Jesus Christ is ultimately the fruitful person. Now, I'm sure that as I say that, there'll be people here who, who don't instantly know why why Christ and being joined to Christ should be the whole answer, why he's all-important and all-encompassing. And in a sense, it, it was hidden from the world for a long time. For generations, it was hidden from the world. Even the Jewish people of the Old Testament who who, if you like, were given the job of of keeping this hope warm, looking forward to a Christ figure to come. They were looking for his arrival. Even they didn't grasp the full significance of who this Christ was and is. And then the mystery that was hidden for generations was revealed. It was revealed. And this was the mystery, that the universe, that the whole world, that everything that you can think of, seen and unseen, actually exists for one person. It's been made for one person, Jesus Christ. He is the most prized person there is. The mystery, when it was revealed, made clear that God the Father is determined, he is insistent that his son, Jesus Christ, should be the first person in the universe. So he ensured that that Christ made everything, that there'd be nothing that wasn't made by him, so that there was nothing that didn't belong to him. Everything, seen and unseen, he'll say this in verses 15 to 20, we'll come to it much more next week, has been made by Christ. And because he made it, the universe belongs to him. And not only was everything made by him, but everything was made for him. So my, uh, my great-great-grandfather, even if he didn't know it, he was made by Christ for Christ. My colleagues, your colleagues, have been made by Christ for Christ. You and I have been made by Christ for Christ. And he's not only the the first person in the universe, but he's actually, this letter will say, the full person in the universe in the sense that he is the mature person. God has filled all his godness into Jesus Christ. He is the, the first person and he's the full person. Chapter 1 verse 19 says, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, that is Christ. All the godness of God dwells in one bodily person in Jesus Christ. He's full of God's goodness. So as we come back to verses 1, or chapter 1, verses 3 to 8, we see that this hope makes us fruitful, ultimately because it joins us to the full person in the universe, the mature person, the person in whom are all the resources to be fruitful. And we need to be convinced of this, for it's a bold idea that life in the end is a simple matter of being nourished from one source, being joined to one person. And so we come now to verses 9 to 12. Come with me to our second point. And I've summed it up on on our sheets. As in every way, this hope makes us fruitful in every way. It can be the complete answer to how we are fruitful. Because it produces complete growth. Now, in verse 9, I don't know if uh, you noticed as it was read, but it, but it actually begins with a surprise because it begins with words that we would never really use. Paul writes to Christians who are doing very well. He hasn't met them. Now, he only knows them through Epaphras, this messenger. He probably heard the gospel under Paul in Ephesus, then went back to Colossae and planted that church. And now Paul writes to these Colossians, but he's heard news of them, and they're doing really well. They're really fruitful believers. And what does Paul say in verse 9? For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we've not stopped praying for you. (laughs) Those words are a bit puzzling to our ears, aren't they? Surely we would have written it like this. Dear Colossians, I'm really glad to hear from Epaphras that you've heard the gospel now. You're bearing fruit. You're showing signs of doing well as Christians. And, And now I'll move on to pray for all the people who haven't heard of Jesus Christ. That's my urgent mission. But when Paul, pray, when Paul hears that they've grasped this hope, well, he starts to pray urgently and constantly for them. And we might, might, we might wonder, why bother? Why pray for Christians? Why do we pray for Christians? Well, if they're sick, if they're ill, if they're suffering, we pray for them. But, but in the ordinary course of things, what, why pray for Christians? In a sense, isn't it the end of the story once they've become Christians? Haven't they got the big idea? Why pray for Christians? well, Paul prays because something is now possible that wasn't possible before. There is the prospect of something that wasn't there before. They're now involved, if you like, in a process and in a project, the central project of the universe that they couldn't be before. And what is now possible in verses 9 to 12 is growth in every way in everything they do. In Christ, everything for growth is supplied. Now, verses 9 to 12 are, are some of those verses that are full of so much Bible and spiritual language that it just washes over us a sea of words. There are words like knowledge and spiritual wisdom and understanding and endurance and patience and joy. And we're a bit overwhelmed and we wonder, really, what's he saying? What's he saying here? But, but the key to understanding these verses is to realize that every little word is joined to Christ. All these little words are lines to Christ. These verses are soaked in Christ. And let's see how that can be. Let me read again verses 9 to 12. And as I do, highlight the key words, the two key words that point us again and again to Christ, the word in and the idea of every, all. For this reason, says Paul, since the day we heard about you, So do you see that that as he begins to pray, he says, I pray that you will be filled, filled with the knowledge of God's will. But that word fill, it's its favorite vocab in Colossians. But it implies Christ, for he is the only full person. Chapter 1, verse 19, he's full of all the godness of God. And now you can be filled with this knowledge of his will because you've been joined to Christ. A Knowledge of his will is... It's not, what, what am I going to do tomorrow? What does God want me to do tomorrow? It's, it's a knowledge of his, his big purpose, his master plan, by which he runs and orders the universe. And Paul says that it's now possible to be filled with a knowledge of that, to grasp that, because you're joined to Christ. As we've seen already, Christ is at the very center of God's purpose and plan, that Christ be seen publicly to be the first person in the universe. And you can't, you can't guess that. You, know, you can't think really hard and think, well, what is God's will? What's his master plan? Now Paul continues to pray that they would have all spiritual wisdom and understanding. You need access to spiritual wisdom and understanding to understand that. And Paul says that is now possible. It is now possible, if you like, to, to grasp and understand God's blueprint for the world. That's what his wisdom is, his, his master plan for the world. Because you've come to Christ. Chapter 2, verse 3 will say... In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and understanding. So, of course, the Christian joined to Christ can now receive all the resources of wisdom and understanding to understand and grasp God's master plan in Christ. And what's the purpose of this wisdom, verse 10? Well, it's not to make you clever. Wisdom's never got that purpose. Wisdom is always about living well in God's world according to his blueprint. So it's no surprise, verse 10, Paul prays this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord's, that you may please him in every way. Now that, uh, that sounds to us noble and sacrificial, live a life worthy of the Lord. But actually that phrase live a life, well it, it's an everyday thing. It's about doing the messy, complicated stuff of life, but being able to do any of it and all of it in a way that's worthy of the Lord. So somehow it's possible that that in the, the messiness of life, in the small and the trivial tasks of life, to actually do them in a way that will be fruitful. So they may seem trivial, but actually they can, they can lead to fruitfulness. That's what Paul's saying. Now this, uh, this, this I think, is radical because, if I could just pause for a moment, we, we usually think that, that the job that we live in or the marriage that we live in, the circumstances that we live in or, or wished we lived in, or maybe the circumstances that we regret having lived in, we we think that those ultimately define whether or not we're fruitful. And maybe at the, at the beginning of this year we say, yeah, I want to change those circumstances. I wish those circumstances were different. But Paul's saying something radical, because in verse 10 he assumes that, that if we're in Christ, every circumstance of life, even in the midst of unpromising circumstances... If we're joined to Christ, then every act and thought can, in a deep sense, be fruitful, can grow us. Because of verse 10, Christ is so charged, full of everything fruitful, knowledge, wisdom, power, strength. If you're joined to him, anything and everything done in him can bear fruit. Well, do you see verse 10? That What that means is not the end of a story, but the beginning for the Christian. It means that you look difference. Paul says verse 10 that that they might grow in the knowledge of God. It sounds like we've just uh, we've just come full circle, doesn't it? Verse 9 he talked about the knowledge of God's will and now we're on to the knowledge of God. But this knowledge in verse 10 is knowledge of God and, and in Colossians that means that you begin to look like God. It's about bearing his image. It's about doing what humans were made to do. The extent to which you look like the creator who is Christ. And Paul says that that growing in the knowledge of God means that you change by the process of verses 9 and 10 into someone who looks more and more like Christ, who is the Creator God. So, this is ultimately why this hope is not a minority interest. it's It's not something on the side, this growth in Christ. Paul wants to put it at the very, very center of our lives and our thinking. And Paul says that this is all now possible. All this growth, this comprehensive growth, even in unpromising circumstances, humanly speaking, it's possible because we now live somewhere else, spiritually speaking, if we're Christians. And then in verses 13 to 14, come with me. This is where Paul lays out how they have changed and how we, our circumstances, have changed, spiritually speaking. We now live in a different place. The reason the hope makes you fruitful in every way is that it joins you to the sun, who is Christ. It places you within the realm of the Son. Where you live, spiritually speaking, changes everything. Now you might, have, uh, you might have seen this illustration or been familiar with it. But uh, suppose, shall we say that uh, I put this bit of paper in this book. It's fair to say that wherever this book goes, the piece of paper goes. Whatever's true of the book is now true of the piece of paper that's in it. If I put this in water... Well, the paper gets wet. The paper is in water. Everything that's true of this book becomes true of this piece of paper. And all Paul's talk in this letter of being in Christ comes down to verse 13, that there has been a transferal for the Christian. This is what it means to be a Christian, become a Christian. It is to be transferred from what he describes as the word, the dominion of darkness an order of things, and to be placed in a different realm in Christ. And we've seen something of who Christ is, of what he is. And so for the Christian person to be found in Christ, to be placed in Christ, means that, that what is true of Christ is now true of them. His biography is their biography. His biography is our biography, if we're a Christian. And one of the things that's found in Christ is redemption, forgiveness of sins. Verse 14, Paul can't help wax about what comes to you when you're transferred into Christ, when you become so affiliated with him that it's true to say that you live in him, under his authority. Redemption, forgiveness of sins, because Jesus died a death that pays the penalty for sin. And so if we're joined to him, if we're in him, then the benefits of that death become ours. We're found in him. But not only that, Paul has said, wisdom, strength, endurance power, joy, knowledge of God—all comes to the Christian only and ever because they're in Christ. They're in Christ. So, as we um, as we draw to a close, I want to uh, I want to remind us of two things we've seen as we've gone through this passage. We'll see much more as Paul breaks cover, as it were, in the letter and becomes explicit in his argument. About how Christ is sufficient. But I want to draw draw our attention to two things. And one is uh, what is central. We've seen what is central. The hope that we have already heard of Christ in you. This hope is central. It's central for Paul. It's to be central for us. And the reason that it's the whole of the answer for us is because Christ is the whole of the answer for God's purpose and plan. Christ is central. And so this hope that joins us to him must be central for us. But it's central because he is comprehensive. In him, all the resources for comprehensive growth are found. So if you're you're searching for spiritual progress or, or growth or advancement or to thrive and be fruitful, anywhere other than Christ, well, there's a sense in which that's pointless. There's no spiritual capital outside of Christ. God is determined that it be that way. If anything, any spiritual capital was found outside of Christ, well, well, it wouldn't be true that Christ was the first person. But the God the Father has determined that Christ be the first person in the universe. So then we're forced to re-evaluate our circumstances, the, the unpromising circumstances that we wish we could change. If we're joined to Christ, Paul says very radically that there is the possibility for us to grow and to flourish and to thrive as we were meant to, to be fruitful in the deepest sense as we grow more and more to look like our creator God. So we're right, as we finish this passage, to insist on a kind of narrow-mindedness that says, no, life is in the end a simple vocation. It's about being joined and affiliated with a single person, nourished from a single source. We'll see as we go on in this letter that the Christian life Is about submitting to one master, not many, and being nourished from one source, not many, at living in Christ and for Him. Let's pray together. Our Father God, we thank you that for those of us who are Christians, we can say that we have been transferred from the world, from a place of darkness and a desperate place to be in Christ and to receive all that he has, to receive all his benefits. We thank you particularly for that redemption, that forgiveness of sins that comes to us in him. And we pray, Father God, that you would bring to the very forefront of our lives this hope that we would not shift from it and so not shift from this Jesus Christ